0: Verse 1, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Rise, go to Padan-Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. <clears throat> may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, or the King James translates that's the Syrian, just so you have some idea what we're talking about there, where that is, more on that in a bit. The brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. (coughs) Now we have just a little aside here on Esau, we won't be really doing much with it, but I do want to read it. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed, you keep coming across that word blessed, that's important to note. He saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to ba- Padan Aram to take a wife from there and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, which you remember was precisely what Esau had done two times already and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paden Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women, those are the two he married, Hittite women, did not please Isaac, his father, Esau sent to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So I won't say a lot more on that, except to just make the comment or the observation that it's interesting, Esau can never quite get it figured out, can he? I mean, he keeps making attempts that fall short to please his parents and more importantly, to please God. And I think it betrays something. When you come over into the New Testament, what are we told? We're told that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And I think it's just another, if you were preaching on, on Esau, I'd talk about this because I think it's just another insight into the fact that he was not a, he was not to our knowledge a saved individual. In fact, I think Hebrews makes that clear. And he didn't have a perception of spiritual things. And so here's a quick summary of it. The, uh, the unchosen son marries into the unchosen line. Digest that for a few moments and then you kind of get a little bit of a sense of Esau, but Esau is not really our topic. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder, or we could say a staircase, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, so he's speaking directly to God now in this vow that he makes, of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this Lord's Day, and it's a special day. We look forward to it because we have the opportunity of corporate worship and all of the blessings that surround that. Uh, and we also uh, have the opportunity to have a little different schedule and to enjoy fellowship with family and perhaps rest and the, all of these things you've built in in your wisdom to this particular day. Help us to observe that to the best of our ability and strengthen us now. Bless the other classes, whether for the graded Sunday school or the other ABF classes. Bless us here, Lord. Um, you've gathered us. You know the needs of our hearts. You know our downsitting. Our uprising you understand our thoughts afar off and you know us better than we know ourselves and there's a lot of comfort we take in that so we're we're complex people but at the at the at the simplest we're needy people and we pray that you would meet us where we are today encourage us whatever it is we need may the Word of God whether here or in the morning sermon or the afternoon sermon evening sermon whatever Uh, we're here for today. Uh, Would you reach us, would you bless us, draw us closer to you, and help us to see those things that we can do to please you more in our Christian life and and grow more into the knowledge of Christ. We pray these things in in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, this morning we have our third lesson, and I've entitled this, as you see there, The Dream at Bethel. So, if you're thinking about the most famous things that happen in the life of Jacob, and I, I might mention that Jacob is sort of unique now, as, especially as we compare to Abraham and Isaac in that you have more times, many more times, at least in the record, okay, what we, what we know from the record, many more times that God is appearing to Jacob, and Jacob is actually having encounters with God. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, when you realize that, if you can forgive the use of the term, the, the, this is all evolving. I mean, God is bringing more to fruition His purposes of redemption through this family and through the uh, descendants of Abraham, which we know as the Hebrews. So, uh, that makes a lot of sense. In the life of Jacob, there are two key ones. There aren't just two, but there are two key ones. This is one of them. This, This really, as I mentioned in the next thought, is kind of a decisive, momentous, occasion in the life of Jacob, and you know it's talked about in spirituals, Jacob's ladder, and uh, that's where all of this comes from, and I, I've chosen just to call it the, the, the dream at Bethel for our purposes here today. But its significance is, is this is where Jacob meets God. In fact, this is where Jacob meets God personally for the first time. Again, all we have is the record right? So, But the record is inspired, and God is choosing what to give us in the record. So I think we have to, on the one hand, realize that God doesn't tell us everything. But on the other hand, he's telling us the story like he wants us to understand it. And for us to be in a position today to evaluate and to think about not just Jacob's first personal encounter with God, but our own, is a really important thing so it's life-changing it it was for me i'm sure it was for you when i personally encountered god because what i'm trying to say to you is now this is something that might startle you the people who study this stuff remember those of you who are in the class on joseph we had uh, i gave you a chronology of his life and referenced uh, a book of charts and these types of things for the old testament that um a man by the name of Walton had put, has put together. It's a, it's a, it's a really good resource, and I'd be curious to know how some of those things are arrived at because I look at them and I kind of go back and try to figure how they quite get there. But those who study these types of things estimate or tell us that Jacob is seventy-seven at this point. Now that. I wouldn't have quite maybe thought that much. They lived longer. But even so, when you realize he lived 147 years, that's halfway. And we do know this. Esau married those two Hittite women when he was 40. So Jacob spent all this time and hasn't married yet. And he's grown up, though, in what we would call a Christian home. Okay, I'm trying to relate it to us. He's grown up hearing about God. We might even think in terms of, of course, we have a number of children in our church that are homeschooled, but those maybe who attend Christian school. So you you grow up from the beginning. Your parents are in church, so you go to church. Your parents are in Sunday school, so you go to Sunday school. Um, They may send you to Christian school, but you grow up hearing about God, but there's a big difference between knowing about God certain things that you grow up encountering and learning and actually experiencing God for yourself. If you have the one, that's a good start. If you don't have the other, you aren't there yet. It's absolutely essential that each of us meets God personally and has a personal encounter with God. Am I putting too much weight on this? No, because let's look at what the Bible has to say about it. Here's this verse that we looked at once before. It's very interesting. You let Scripture interpret Scripture, and it sort of helps keep a rein on some of these things and helps us to um, know when we're placing the right kind of emphasis on an experience. And fortunately, we have that here. So we looked at this before. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. So that's the very beginning. And in his manhood, he strove with God. So, we're going to be talking about Peniel here in this. He strove with the angel. That's chapter 32. We aren't there yet. He wept and sought his favor, but look at this. He met God at Bethel. Now, to be fair, he meets God at Bethel twice, but I think the language here, when you see what, what, what we read in chapter 35, you'll find out that the language is, is fine to apply to both occasions. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us, as, as in through him, that experience. So let's, let's just leaf over to chapter 35 for a moment, and let's see what the record says in the second time that he's coming back now from Paden Aram and, and coming back home, and he encounters God for the second time at Bethel. And this is decisive as well, but it's not quite like the first time where he met God there for the very first time. So look at verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel. Remember, he came back into the land. He stopped at Shechem. You know, a little problem there at Shechem with Dinah. We'll <laughs> maybe get to that later. But at any rate, God says, get a move on. And chapter 35, when we talk about it, really is a chapter about revival. So it's no wonder God sends him back to the place where he first met God. You know, if you get a little bit clumsy and negligent in your spiritual experience, usually you find God where you left him. And that's what's going on here. God says, arise, go up to Bethel. Why is that significant? And dwell there. It says, make an altar there to the God who what? Who appeared, past tense, to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So it's taking us back to the first time he encountered God at Bethel. Notice verse seven also. It says, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, God of the house of God, because there God revealed, notice this, past tense again, when he fled, revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. But when did God first reveal himself to you? And it's really important that we can answer that question, and we're not just counting on the fact that well, we go to Community Baptist Church, or we know the creed, or we went to a Christian college. No, it takes a personal experience with Christ to be assured of heaven and to be assured of knowing that our sins are forgiven. So, verse nine, we'll look at that. And God appeared to Jacob again, so that's at the same place when he came from Paden Aram, and blessed him. So. No, I don't think we're putting too much weight on this at all. In fact, those who study Jacob's life and who write commentaries on these types of things, many of them would regard this particular chapter that we're dealing with now, this first meeting with God, this first personal encounter with God, as opposed from just growing up, hearing about it from Isaac and Rebekah, as his conversion experience. And the the only little cautionary that I would give you here is, you and I are hot to trot, so to speak, living in the, the dispensation and day that we do. Because we have the New Testament, we're a lot more hot to trot to look for these types of things and pin them down. And the Old Testament can sometimes be a little sketchy when it comes to those details because it doesn't always relate things in the same way that we're looking for with the greater knowledge of the New Testament. I'm not saying they didn't have conversion experiences. They obviously did. But some of the language is not quite used in the same way. For instance, when you read what happened with Abraham and then you come over to the New Testament and it says, he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And go, wow, I don't know that I would have figured that that was the time. So they had these experiences, obviously, but don't look for all this precise definition and some of the language and terminology that we're used to in the New Testament. But they still had these experiences, even if we're not always given the detail we might like. So I personally, I wouldn't argue with that statement. I don't know that you can make a better selection. Some people would say, well, maybe it happened at Peniel in chapter 32. I think I would lean a little more towards this idea here, but I, I, I would caution about being dogmatic sometimes with reading all of the specificity that we have in the New Testament back into every situation in the Old Testament, even though we know it's something is there that's real, just as our experience with Christ is real. So I want to do three things in the lesson, a little more we'd spent time on introduction, but I did want to set the stage. I want to talk about if this is his first encounter with God, is there any kind of a run up to this? And here again, I'm just asking you, When you think about what I'm trying to get across to you, I want you to think about your own experience with God. Did you just bump into God one day? It may have seemed that way, but not from God's perspective. Because God's the one who's arranging all of this, and God is going to and did. At this point in life, when you look back on your Christian experience, can't you see how God did an amazing work of providence to prepare you and more specifically, to prepare your heart so that you would be open and so that you would be receptive to the gospel. That's what's going on here. That's what I'm talking about. Then we'll talk about the actual experience, what actually happened in this encounter, and secondly, how does he respond to it? Because lots of people come to church and have some kind of an experience. They know God is speaking to them, but or in other t- places. But the, the response to that is, is what's crucial. So that's where we are with what we're looking at here today. What's the run-up to this? What's the prelude? I like prelude because you think that's a church term that we know pretty well. And uh, lots of churches do lots of things with this. You're trying not to hinder fellowship before the service, but at the, at, at the same point, oftentimes music is used as a prelude to kind of quiet our hearts, we come find our seats, we think a little bit about the service that's going to follow, and it's designed to be preparatory. That's where I'm using the word now. So what I'm saying is, if Jacob doesn't realize it, which oftentimes we really don't at the time, we don't really realize that these encounters, or not, I don't want to use the word encounter, excuse me, back, back up, these situations and circumstances in our lives that have happened to us You know, sometimes they're just random, or sometimes we don't understand where they're coming from or what the purpose is. But boy, when this happens and then you are able to look back and see what God was doing. Let's see what God was doing. I want you to think a little bit. I think a lot of value is lost when we don't read the Bible. I guess the term would be, and meditate, stop and think about what we read. I'd be the last person to speak lightly of a reading plan because I've done that all my life. But there is something to be said for not just thinking about each day in terms of five chapters or whatever that you have to read, but finding some way to hone in on some part of it and think about it a little bit. For years, um, and actually this is still part of my practice I had so much time to read the Bible in the morning, which I always did. I mean, before the day really was beginning, before I ever went to go study the Bible professionally, if that's what you want to call it. There's a big difference between doing that. And I personally think it's a big mistake for any minister to rely on message preparation as your, you know, you need personal time with God, just like everyone else does. So I'd be done with reading. I only had so much time, and then I'd go out to exercise. So whether I was cycling or running or walking or whatever it was I was going to do, I'd think back over what I read, and I'd say, "Now, what did I really read? What's that mean? What? What?" And folks, I'm—I I'm tell- don't know that I'm not telling you to observe my practices and habits, but I'm just saying that worked wonders for me. Many, many was the time that God spoke to me and, and, and gave me blessings and gave me... Uh, but So think about this. What's this like? He's alone, he's away from home for the first time, and he's vulnerable. Did you ever think about that? What I'm saying is this. He was a homeboy. Right? Isn't that what we were told? I mean... Esau, at least, was very comfortable in the field. Who knows? He probably slept out at night a bunch of times. Hunters do that, you know. I had a nephew who's nigh on to a professional hunter. Not not explicitly so, but his skills are in that range. And he'd go out for a week. Camp, hunt, all this kind of stuff. I'm sure Esau was was very much that way. But you go back and you read chapter 25, Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. I mean, he was used to being around home, and so far as we know from the record, he never left. Can you imagine being 77 years old? Well, figure it's half your life. And that's all you've ever been used to, and all of a sudden now you're sent away. That's what it says. Isaac sent him away. You know, he probably needed some urging, although Esau furnished a little impetus because Esau was breathing fire. So he was ready to hightail it away from him. But his parents were also urging this upon him against the backdrop of, you can't, look, you know what? If you're going to inherit the Abrahamic blessing, if you you want the Abrahamic blessing, which is now his, there's no question about it. Receiving that entails certain responsibilities. And one of them is, you don't want to marry the women of Canaan. You, you need to find a woman of faith. That's how we would look at it today. That would be our terminology today. Someone who acknowledges and worships Jehovah, not these idols in the land. And, but I have a little map for you, so let's just think about this. I, I apologize if you can't see that quite as well as I would like. I'm worried about this when I... When I this is, this is uh, out of Logos Bible software, so you know sometimes when you... Okay, that helps. So, thank you. This journey starts in Beersheba. Look at verse, uh, I believe it's 12. i got to get back to the right chapter. Yes, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. So, way down in the south, in the Negev, is where this starts. That's where home is at this point. And then let's move it north just a little bit. Come on, a little bit more. Ah, look at that. Paden Aram, up in modern-day Syria area, There's, see, where Damascus is even south of that quite a bit, so you're looking at roughly 450 miles. Now, those of you that walk for your exercise, I'm just saying. I read about this guy, my wife was telling me about this, this Marine that was 91 years old, I think WYFF had a story on it, uh, and he was local, I think, in, maybe in the broad sense of Greenville, but he was trying to amass enough miles that he'd walk from the North Pole to the South Pole. I think, man, like a guy, a guy in the ministry in Pennsylvania, he, when, when he, all the years that he ran, he ran six and a half miles a day. And, and overlapping with those years, I was running too, and I used to think to myself, you know, I'm not out here to do that. I, I'm out here to get the exercise I need to stay healthy, but that's too much. And a time or two I made bold and told him, you're going to pay for that one day. Sure enough, he, <laughs> he had to quit that and ended up with some of these situations. But wow, a 450 mile walk, how long do you think that took? I mean, you might make 25 miles a day. And if you're in really good shape, you might make a little more. So I'm just trying to get you to think about this. Here's a guy who's by himself. Think about it this way: there's a big contrast between this excursion for a wife and the one that took place when Eliezer, Abraham's steward, went to find a wife for his dad, that is Jacob's dad. When he left out of there, Hebron or Beersheba, whichever it was, when he left out of there, he left out of there with a retinue, right? I mean, he had camels, he had servants, he was the head knocker, but I mean he he had people with him. He had protection it treasures with him, too, right? I mean, she was soon to find that out when he met up with her, got all that stuff and presented it. This guy's by himself. He's not used to being away from home. And when you're in that kind of situation, you're, very, you're vulnerable. And so let's go off of this. Well, we might have to do something to talk to it here. Yeah, there we go. Let's let him tell us what it was like. So, over in chapter 35, verse 3, go to that for a moment. Again, let the record speak for itself. Then let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers, or answered me, in the day of my distress. He says it was distress. He uses the word distress. Then if you drop down to verse... uh, 7. He uses another word. And it says here, and there he built an altar and called the name of the place El Bethel, because there God revealed himself to him when he fled. That word is also used in verse number one. God says that's what you were doing when you fled from your brother Esau. So if you're fleeing, that implies fear and probably implies guilt. Think about this for a moment. I'm not talking about the preparation of the heart. Fear and guilt. Same things that were going on in the Garden of Eden, right? Fear and guilt. When they sinned, when they ate of that fruit, and the Lord God came walking in the cool of the day, what did they do? They hid themselves. Plus, they made those, you know, fig leaf things. (coughs) Fear and guilt. He knows he hasn't done right. He knows he's been a two-timer. He knows he's been deceitful. He didn't just get the idea, hey mom, hey dad, you know, I, I should probably be thinking about marriage. Could you kind of set things up where I would go up there and, no, this is, this is under duress, this is distress. He didn't leave home willingly, he left home because he had to and that's why the Bible makes it clear that Isaac sent him away. He was being sent away. It's not quite as strong as being banished, but you're close to the idea that there's more elements involved than just a, a, a voluntary Uh, trip or mission. So, where all this comes out in my book is God is breaking him of his self-reliance. That's the way he's lived his life up until this point. He's been a man of self-reliance. He can get the blessing. He doesn't need to get it from God because he can make deals for it. He can broker it. But it doesn't work that way. God gives it not because we are smart. God gives it because he's a God of grace. So, God's gonna have to break him of that before he's really gonna be ready to open his heart to God and depend on God, trust God, and turn to God. People that are proud and people that are self-reliant don't turn to God. But when God deals with you to the point that you're broken of that, now he's got something he can work with. That's what's going on at Bethel. Finally, he's ready to meet God, all right? That's the prelude. What about the experience? So we're gonna run through this very quickly. What happens? He he has a dream. God appears to him in the dream. He sees a ladder or a staircase which reaches to heaven. That's a, a hugely important detail. He doesn't just see any old staircase. He sees one that reaches to heaven. Then he sees angels ascending and descending. Note verse 13 and notice that it says ascending, that's first, and descending. Ascending and descending. I'll talk about it in a minute. I just want you to see that now. So if you need to look down at your verse, look down at your verse. Then what happens, and this one we are going to look at, God reiterates the Abrahamic blessing. Isaac has given it to him no holds barred. I don't know if you noticed that. That language at the beginning of the chapter, this is, it's really nice to see Isaac end on a good note. I mean, he, he had a hard time reconciling himself to this because he wanted to give it to Esau, but when he finally realizes that this is God's will and it is going to prevail, remember I showed you last week, yea, and he shall be blessed is what he told Esau. And there's no reversing this. God, God has made it clear. And, but now God reiterates it. And look at what, what does that promise really mean in a practical sense. Verse 15. He says, behold, I am with you. So there's a guarantee of God's presence. You ever think that? Think about how much that means we have the same guarantee. Lo, I am with you always, even to the consummation of the age. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He says something else. He says to him, "And will keep you. That means a lot too. That's protection or preservation. I am with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back. That's your preservation idea. (laughs) You know, he's got a real He's got an amazing promise here, and will bring you back to this land. And then the fourth element involves a promise, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Folks, I don't have as much time as I'd really like to, but you know the same is true for me and you today. God is not going to leave us until He accomplishes everything He intends to. And there's a certain security in that, you know? I mean, we don't know whether we have tomorrow. The Bible says, Thou knowest what a day may bring forth, but if we're walking with God, we can be assured that He's going to, he's going to accomplish His purpose in us and through us as we yield to it. So, now let's talk about what, what all this really means, what He saw. Well, if you've got a ladder and you've got earth down here and heaven up here, what have you got? A gulf. You know, I don't know where heaven is, do you? Not totally sure I know what heaven is. I know some things about it that are revealed in the Bible. What I'm trying to say is this. Every time we are um, given something to think spatially about, heaven's up. And I don't totally know what all that means. And the bad place is down. But. This implies a separation because, you know, if if you think about that, and that's just how they were thinking, that's how you or I would think. Man doesn't fly. You can't get there. Although man tried once before, right? Do you remember? There was a great gulf, and man got the idea he was going to build a great tower that would reach under the heavens. What am I talking about? The Tower of... Babble. Can you get to heaven through self- effort? No, doesn't work. God confused their tongues. God said, I'll put it into this. You guys think you're so smart. doesn't work this way. Be, that would be the way Esau might think, but that's not the way it works. So it implies separation. Then you have the angels ascending and descending, which I pointed out, So there's access because they're not just coming down, it starts with them going up. There's a way to get there. There's a way to get there from here. Doesn't that mean something to you today? There's a way to get to heaven from here. Man, that's good news, isn't it? And aren't you glad that it's not a great gulf fixed for us? Because when Jesus told that story about the rich man and Lazarus, that's what he told him in the story Abraham said it. There's a great gulf fixed between and you can't cross it. I mean, once you're here, you're here. Once you're there, you're there. Need to to meet Jesus here. Not going to be an opportunity to fix that later. Need to meet Jesus here (laughs) now while while the opportunity of grace is offered. Who is speaking? There are angels, but... Nothing is told us about what they're talking about. Maybe they're not talking at all. God's doing all the talking. Because this is a personal encounter. And again, I make the point, you know, when you experience God for the first time, it, somebody else can't do that for you. I mean, you can know how your mother came to Christ. You can know how your brother came to Christ. My brother's coming to Christ was huge for me. You can know all that, but it's not the same thing. You have to have that experience for yourself. So God is speaking to make this a personal encounter and... Then I want you just to, I wish I had more time to uncork and let fly on this, but man, I mean, when you think about these promises and relate that to you and me today, first of all, they're unsolicited. Jacob doesn't even know that God is there. God simply appears to him and starts making these promises seemingly out of the blue. They're unmerited. Do you really think he deserved this? I mean, God... Promises him all these things. God reiterates the Abrahamic covenant that Isaac talked about in the beginning of the chapter in spades. I mean, he just, this thing is just overflowing with bounty that God says in verse 15 he's going to do. But this guy's about as undeserving. I mean, you know, he what's, he, what's his track record to this point? Not so great. He's a swindler, he's a, he's a deceiver, he's a cheat not a likely candidate for God's grace, but then God isn't looking for likely candidates for his grace. Here's another word, unstinting. As I say, it just, it's overwhelming. My cup overflows. I mean, he, just, he promises this in such, plen- using such plentiful terminology. And what do you boil all this down to? Same thing, we better not ever get away from it. It's all grace. All God's dealings with us are pure grace. There's not a single bit of our human merit. There's not a single thing we deserve. The outflow is rich. God's grace is boundless. But if you think about it and you realize that God was preparing his heart for this, you think you sing sing this song and it it has an element of truth. I'm not saying it doesn't. I've said I think this to you before. We say, I have decided to follow Jesus. And there's an element of truth to that. But the further you get down the road, you realize, well, you know, it really wasn't my idea. God was working in my heart, drawing me to himself, wooing me and preparing me so that I couldn't get to him fast enough. But I wasn't that way for a long time. I was going the other way. Like Jonah, you know, he's going the opposite direction. So I have a little summary for you and a point to make you could come up with here's a great outline if you need to preach on this chapter great gulf great god great grace and there's a new testament fulfillment i've pointed this out to you you what, this is a decisive occasion the new testament none other than jesus christ himself singles this out this is from john chapter 1 Andrew finds Nathanael. He says, Remember the story? He says, Hey, we found the one that the Old Testament promised Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael, remember, he's skeptical. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. No good thing comes out of Nazareth. No, come and see. This is arguing with people. Come and see for yourself. Jesus says, You know, before before Philip spoke to you, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Jesus, this is where we pick up this. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, Jacob did, and the angels of God ascending and descending, same exact language, on the Son of Man. So I'm asking you, who is the latter? Who is the means of access? How can I tell you, and you know for sure, that you can get there from here? Because Jesus is the way. He's the truth and the life. It's the only way. You can go build your Tower Babel, but you won't get there. But if you get on the staircase called Jesus, you can get there. It's Great. Great God, great grace deals with that great gulf. We don't have much time, but we'll take a look at this. How does he respond? I'm just going to summarize it for you, the, 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 the last point before I get to it. There's three key elements, but I think the most important to say about this is I think he responds the best way he knows how. Some people, as I say in that last point there, some people get all worried about the fact that he sounds like he's bargaining with God. And I think that's being a little harsh. I think you know you have to realize that when you put these three elements together, this is a decent response. He responds with reverence. Verse 17, he says, he was afraid and said how awesome. The SV uses awesome, but it's the very same word that's translated in the prior reference, he was afraid. He was afraid and said, how fearful is this place. Man, that's a a great thing, because people who who are fearful or who revere God, um, when you get to the place where you revere God, generally it's because you recognize that you're in the presence of someone who is, what's the word we want? Holy, and you are not. And you're awed by this because you realize how awesome and how fearful. Anytime you find, whether it's John in the book of Revelation or any other place, Job, I think I have the Job verse, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. That's one thing. Now mine eye sees you. What's my reaction? I therefore despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Anytime you find someone having an encounter like this with God, this is the reaction. So I think this is good on, on Jacob's part. He's, it's, it's, it's kind of a confession of sensing his unworthiness. Um, there's consecration. He makes a vow. Uh, verse 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow, and over in 31.13, it refers to this again. That's uh, where uh, he's, God is encouraging him about going back. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and made a vow to me. So God took note of this vow. We have to be careful what we say, because God takes note. And there's worship. He set a pillar up and poured the oil on it. Well, I guess in brief summary, what, what you've got here, folks, these are the, some of the key elements of patriarchal worship. Now, you'll find this over and over again. They set up altars. Um, they recommitted themselves or committed themselves to God. So in 3514, for example, Um, It makes the same reference again. Uh, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured on a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. What's all that basically to say? I mean, you know, those are other things that you could talk about with a lot more time. But what's to say? I don't think it's so much bargaining with God as as Jacob just responding as best he knows how. I think it's a decent response. I think it's, it's the response God is looking for at this, place because, at this place because if you think about, you know, your first encounter with God, are you everything that you are 40 years later? No. No more than a baby is 40 years later from when you first see him in the hospital or her. We grow in grace, but you have to be in grace to grow in grace, so you have to have that personal encounter. This is really where Jacob's pilgrimage, that is is his walk with God, this is where it really begins. You have to have that experience. But you're not going to be the same. Hopefully in 40 years or however how long God gives you on this earth, you're going to be a more mature Christian, you're going to be more Christ-like, and that same process starts right here in the life of this man and much of what we do as we continue studying is him learning about this struggle for blessing, how you come to experience God's blessing, weaning, being weaned of self-effort, being weaned of self-dependence. He's not done with that, you know. I mean, he's still Jacob, just like you're still you, and he, we're going to see more episodes of this. He gets over there, you know, and Laban takes advantage of him, and he fights back from fire with fire, and uses some of his conniving again, and God has to say, kind of get to him, you know, and you need to quit being Jacob and be Israel. And it's the same with us. So, I hope that this is helpful to us today. Um, we are out of time. Maybe the day will come when I have time to ask you about questions, but please feel free, <laughs> please feel free anytime to come to me after class or send me an email. If I didn't say something right or it wasn't clear enough or you have a question about something, let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the access that we read about and are convinced about in the Bible. There's a way to heaven. How overjoyed we are with that truth today. Thank you that there came a time in our lives when after you worked to prepare us, we experienced that access through Jesus Christ. And even today, we have access, exactly what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, we have access through faith faith into this grace in which we stand. Every day we can come to you, we can come to you right now, just as I'm doing, to talk to you. So we thank you and we are here today to worship you, help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.